0: So for those of you that have been with us uh, regularly, you know that we are making our way uh, through the book of Acts. And as I've mentioned previously, as we come to the, really, this is the last section of the book here uh, from chapter 21 to 28. And um, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, just in the sense that that it's just uh, this long running narrative that we we just it wouldn't be the right place to really get bogged down in the details of that. So I want to give us kind of a, a an overview of what's happening with the, the story itself, but then focus in on um, a, a specific thing that's really happening here in the passages that we read. So we're going to be looking at uh, Paul's um, speaking to these uh, officials, these, these um Governmental officials. We're looking at him. uh, They're kind of, in a sense, he's there to defend himself and uh, to present his case. But what we see ultimately that he's doing is he's seeking to influence them with the gospel. And so that's what we want to ultimately focus on today. But before we do that, uh, let me just remind you that back in the early part of the book of Acts, uh, back where Paul's conversion is. laid out for us there. Uh, the, the Lord, as Paul, you know, was there um, confronted by the Lord on the road to Damascus, and um, he had that life-altering encounter. As he goes into the city, um, the Lord speaks to this man, Ananias, and he, he's commissioning Ananias to go and pray for uh, Saul of Tarsus. And, and anyway. The Lord ends up uh, speaking to Ananias, and he says this concerning him He says, For he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So, from the very beginning of God's call upon Paul, there was this this plan and this purpose in the mind of Christ uh, for Paul to be this, this special instrument. And his ministry was going to be primarily to the Gentiles. But in the, in the course of that, he would also stand before kings and he would also testify uh, before the children of Israel. So that, that's pretty much what we've seen in the story. We, Luke has recorded three of Paul's, what we call missionary journeys, uh, the, the church planting and all that ministry that he did in the area that we know today as Turkey and over into Europe. And that's pretty much what we've been looking at over the past several weeks. And, and so now we're moving into the section where the kings and the children of Israel are now the focus of Paul's ministry. Remember, Paul was, he was Jewish and his great passion was to bring the gospel to his own people. But he never really felt uh, that that door was open for him. Uh, but now it seems that the time has come for that, and so uh, Paul, Paul, as, as we saw in our previous study, uh, he was he was uh, very committed to making it to Jerusalem. That was his objective. He wanted to go to Jerusalem, and he ultimately did make it to Jerusalem. And there, when he arrived, uh, he was welcomed by the church, and. He gave the report of all that God had been doing among the Gentiles. But but the church had this big concern about Paul because he was kind of a controversial figure. And so they listened, you know, to the reports about what God had done among the Gentiles, but then they said, that, that's great. But um, Paul, <laughs> you know, there, there are many, many Jews here that believe and they're all zealous for the law, and they've heard these rumors about you that you are, uh, you're not all that favorable toward Moses and, and the temple and all of that. And, and this is going to create a huge problem. And so they're, they're really concerned about this, that they couldn't let go of their cultural baggage. And, and Paul was freed from that. Uh, some things that were said about him were distortions of what he had actually said. But, but anyway, this is their big concern. Paul, it's gonna be a problem unless we can do something about these rumors. So they actually came up with a plan and they stated it in in the text there in chapter 21. So let me just read it to you. Uh, Therefore, this is their word to Paul, uh, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow, take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So that, that was their plan. Paul is great what God's done among the Gentiles, but hey, you're back among the Jews. And there are a lot of people that are zealous for the law. They think that you're not um, you know, really supportive of the law. They've heard these rumors about you saying that people should forsake Moses and all that. So let's just squelch all those rumors. This is how we can do it. We've got these four guys. So Paul, wanting to comply and wanting to, to make peace, he goes ahead and he follows their suggestion. And, and so he does the very thing that they asked him to. Now, what happens then though, is, is he goes to the temple uh, after, after the days, the seven days, and he 's there uh, you know, for the final process of, of this uh, thing that was taking place there with these guys, and certain Jews from Asia that were there visiting at the time, they saw Paul in the temple, and these were the guys that were always harassing Paul in his ministry. These were the guys that were causing all the trouble for him in the ministry there in Ephesus and uh, a different places there in that region. So they see him in the temple and they cry out to the people. They say, men of Israel, you Israelites come and help us. This is the man that we told you about. This is the person who teaches Jews everywhere to forsake Moses. And so a big uh, crowd gathers, a big mob, actually, they grab Paul, they drag him out of the temple and they proceed to beat him. Attempting really basically just to beat him to death, to kill him. So as, as this uproar is taking place, uh, the uh, commander of the Roman uh, forces there in Jerusalem, word comes to him that this is going on. So he sends down the garrison and they break up the mob and they, they deliver Paul from what really probably would have been certain death. And so they rescue him, they, they pull him away from the mob. The crowd is still going crazy and they're, they're taking Paul into the barracks, and they're, they're going up a staircase, and as they get to the top, before they enter the barracks, Paul says to uh, the captain, he says, he says g- hey, g- give me a minute. Let me, can I speak to you? And, and the, he says, can you speak Greek? And Paul says, yes, I can speak Greek. And he says, oh, I thought you were an Egyptian, and I thought you were the one that led those uh, 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. <laughs> How, why he thought that? Who knows? But that's who he thought Paul was. Paul says, "No, no, I'm, I'm a Jew, and I'm from Tarsus." And uh, so, anyway, let me speak to the people. And so the commander agreed. Okay. So this mob that was, you know, just a few minutes earlier trying to rip him limb from limb, uh, he stands up and he begins to address them, and he begins to address them in, in the Hebrew language. And because he addresses them in Hebrew, they suddenly, they're attentive to what he's saying. And so what he does is he begins to tell them. Now, remember, Paul has wanted this opportunity to share the gospel with his Jewish um, brethren. This has been the longing of, of, his, of his heart in ministry. Now, of course, he's had ministry among Jews outside of the land, but Paul has really wanted to get back to the center of Judaism, back to Jerusalem, so he could tell his story because he's convinced that once these guys hear my story, they're gonna, they're gonna do what I did. They're gonna believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's where he starts. He says, look, I understand. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But he says, look, I understand your attitude. I, I know exactly how you feel because I used to be just like this. And then he proceeds to tell him how he um, you know, was a Pharisee himself and how he was zealous against this, this uh, you know, message of Jesus and how he persecuted the followers of Christ. And he, he just kind of goes through the whole thing And they're very attentive, they're listening to him. He's kind of got them, I think, probably, uh, right where he wanted them. And in the course of this uh, testimony that he's giving, he then says that there came a point where the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him and said, get out of Jerusalem because they're not gonna receive your testimony. And Paul tells them, he responded back to the Lord, but Lord, they know, they know who I am. That the high priest knows me, everybody knows me. You know, he's disagreeing with the Lord. The Lord says, No, leave from here. I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, he had an attentive audience until he mentioned that one word. When Paul said the word Gentiles and implied that the Messiah of Israel, or he was claiming him to be the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, was going to send him to the Gentiles, these guys went ballistic. They just absolutely flipped. They began to rip their clothes off. They began to shout and scream and throw dirt in the air. And they began to cry out, this man is not fit to live on the earth. We gotta kill this guy. So Paul's great moment of ministry to the Jews was going really well until he mentioned the word Gentile. And it all went south from that moment forward. So as, as the, the captain then you know, brings Paul back into the barracks, he has no idea what has happened. He doesn't speak Hebrew, so he doesn't know what's going on. And so he says to his captain, he says, flog this man and find out what it was that he said uh, to get the crowd so crazy. And so as they they prepared Paul for the flogging, he says to the captain, he says, is it uh, lawful for you to uh, flog a Roman who is uncondemned? And the guy says, wait a second, what, you're, you're a Roman? Paul says, yes, I'm a Roman citizen. And so he calls the commander, the commander comes in. Are, are you really a Roman? Paul says, yes, I am. And the commander says, I, I purchased my citizenship for a great sum of money. Paul says, I was born a citizen. And so they realized we can't flog this guy. He's a Roman citizen. That was against the law to do that. So what the commander decided is that the next day he would call the leadership of Israel together, the high priest and all of those elders, the Sanhedrin, the the ruling body of the nation. And he would bring Paul in and let them talk about what the issues were. So that's what happened the next day. They gathered together. Paul is there in their midst. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, um, it, it got, messy again in there. And everybody kind of once again was trying to get at Paul and, uh, the says the, the commander was afraid that he'd be torn apart. So he sent the guards down again to deliver him. And then from there, uh, the commander sent Paul to Caesarea to Felix. And that's where we picked up the story. Now, um, one of the reasons why he was sent down there was because uh, the, the plot by the high priest was that they were gonna ask the commander to bring Paul one more time and they were gonna try to work things out, but actually they were planning to kill Paul. So they had a, uh, 40 men who had uh, taken a vow that they would neither eat or drink till they killed Paul. So they were gonna ambush uh, the soldiers as they were bringing Paul to the, the place of meeting and all of this was made known to Paul, who made it known to the commander. And so he said, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to send him with uh, an escort of um, 200 uh, soldiers on horseback, uh, 200 spearmen, and um, and uh, you know we're going to give him, put him in protective custody, and send him down to Felix." So that's where we picked up. He is now standing before Felix and once again, these Jewish leaders are coming down to present their case against Paul. Now remember the word of Jesus. He's gonna bear witness to me, uh, to the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So Paul has these now three opportunities in total where he is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah not just to Jewish people, but to the leaders of the Jewish nation. And of course they rejected his message. But then Paul in the course of this is also obviously he's brought before the Kings that, that they're mentioned there by, by Jesus. So Felix, just to give you a little bit of a perspective on this, Felix is in the role that Pontius Pilate was previously in. So this is a few decades later now uh, Pilate has long passed off the scene, but now Felix is the governor and then Festus will become the governor. But then we also have, uh, a reference to King Agrippa. And, and then finally, by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is on his way to stand before Nero, the emperor at that time. So that's the background. Now, this is what I want us to do today. I, I want us to consider Paul's uh, presentation before these kings, before these rulers. And I want us to think of it in, in the, the context of this phrase speaking truth to power. Now, you might not have heard that phrase before. Um, but it, it's, it's something that's, that's definitely out there uh, in the culture. It's being talked about a lot today. And it has to do with the heated political situation that our nation is currently embroiled in. And so there are many people who are talking about the, you know, the need to speak the truth to power. And um, what that amounts to for some people and some Christians in, included in that um, is that they 're basically just lobbing uh, verbal grenades from behind their Facebook or Twitter wall uh, out at um, people or policies that they don 't like and and then all you know as they 're doing that they 're claiming you know we 're speaking truth to power It, it really seems more like they 're just venting or ranting or um, as some people would refer to it uh, virtue signaling just you know, sending out a message like, hey, look how righteous I am, or look how, you know, in tuned I am uh, to the right politics or whatever. Um, so that, that's a, a real thing in our culture right this moment. Now, there is a need to speak truth to power. But you can't find, uh, I don't think you can find a better example of someone doing it than Paul, because that's really what he's doing here. He is speaking truth to power. He's, he's not, uh, he's not holding back the truth at all. He's speaking the truth. But what I want us to see is how Paul does this, because there are times in our lives personally, there are times in the life of the church collectively, where we are called upon to do that very thing. In other words, we're to, we're to push back on power. We're to uh, resist power at certain times, And of course, in the early history of the church, that was something they had to regularly do because the powers that existed were oftentimes opposing the advancement of the gospel or sometimes belief in Christ. And they were wanting uh, a uniformity across the board in the empire where everybody recognized Caesar as Lord, but the church was saying, no, no, uh, we can't do that. Jesus is Lord. That was speaking truth to power right there. And so Paul does it though here in um, the cases that we looked at, and I want us to see how he did it. And the first point that I want us to understand is that uh, Paul spoke truth to power, but he did it respectfully. And this is one of the, the, I think, the current problems we have is there's, you know, people out there, and I'm thinking mostly of Christians who are claiming they're speaking truth to power, but they're they're doing it very disrespectfully. Paul did not do that. Now sometimes we can try to justify it by saying, oh, but you know that person's wicked, or, you know, their policies are horrible or whatever. Uh, that's understandable. The people that Paul was dealing with, they were wicked too. They were very wicked. It'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more wicked ruler in history than Nero. I mean, there probably are some, but you know he was right up there. And yet you never see in the, the New Testament, you never see the apostles striking out with, with any kind of personal vitriol against uh, the powers that be. So they addressed them, but they did so respectfully. And, and it, just as we look really quickly at... Um, Paul before Felix Festus and uh, Agrippa, we see that that's exactly what he did. Notice in verse ten, when called upon by Felix to kind of give his side of the story, verse ten of chapter twenty-four, uh, Paul says, "Inasmuch as I know that you have for have, have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself." So he's he's respectful. Um, now the the Jews on the other hand. They seem respectful as well, but they were duplicitous because they hated Felix. There was uh, absolute animosity between him and the Jewish leaders. He was deposed from his position as governor, uh, partially because of his inability to maintain peace with the Jews. So they hated him, but they came with flattering words. They came and they said, uh, "You know, they're in." um, This guy Tertullus is speaking on their behalf. And he says, seeing that through you, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places. Most noble Felix with all thankfulness. That was just um, not true. <laughs> but it was flattery. So Paul doesn't do any of that. Paul does acknowledge he's been a judge for many nations so he's, uh, for many years over the nation. So he says, you know, I'm happy to present my case before you. So he did it respectfully. Um, And so it was the case with uh, King Agrippa in chapter 26. You notice there in verses two and three, I think myself happy King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So we see respect. Even Festus, who cries out, "Paul, you are insane." Paul says, "No, most noble uh, Festus, I am not insane." So he was very uh, respectful there, referred to him as most noble Festus. Um, I'm not insane. I speak the words of, of truth and reason. Reason. So point number one: Paul was respectful when he was speaking truth to power. And this was Paul's practice. And Paul was a guy who practiced what he preached because this is what he preached. He wrote to Titus, who was overseeing the church in Crete. And listen to what he said. He said, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's the biblical instruction to us um, when it comes to how we are to address those who are in power. We're not to speak evil, um, of, of anyone. Why? Because we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and so forth. You know, I, I think Christians today, and especially in, in our current political cycle, which is not just the present administration, but the previous administration as well, Christians are far too um, vocal in a negative sense about you know the politicians we, we like or or, or, di- or or dislike in this case and and this is a problem this This is contrary to scripture. Now remember again, the context of the New Testament is at this particular time is Caesar Nero. Now, if there was ever a bad ruler that you could have said all kinds of true things about um that were absolutely negative. He was a guy that you, you could have had a field day with him. But the apostles did not do that. And not only did they not do it, but they taught the people not to do that either. Speak evil of no one. And so that's a lesson for us. So he spoke respectfully. Secondly, what we see about Paul is he spoke relevantly. And what I mean by this is that it wasn't just a rant. It wasn't just a... A generalized because I dislike this person or because I think they're abusing their power. I'm just going to kind of throw out, you know, just all, everything I can imagine here uh, that I'm displeased with. Paul addressed them according to their very specific issues. And we see that with Felix and with Um, Agrippa, he addresses them in very different ways because they were very different people and they had very different issues. So notice with um, Felix, it says that Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And it says that Felix was afraid and said to Paul, stop, let's pick this conversation up later. Now, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. See, this was very relevant to the man he's talking to. Felix was a corrupt ruler. He was a very corrupt ruler. Tacitus, the historian, said uh, regarding Felix, that he exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. And that was obviously a negative um, perspective on Felix. His political position was due primarily to his brother's influence with the emperor Claudius. So he was really a guy who was completely unfit for the, for the position, but through family connections, he was able to get into political power. And he abused that power. Um, his wife, Drusilla, was a young Jewish princess. Uh, this, she, she was his third wife. His first wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. So he, he knew how to find the, the right <laughs> girls to get married to to keep himself in power. Uh, but, but Drusilla uh, had been married previously and, and Felix lured her away from her husband. And of course, she went along with us. Now she's the daughter of Agrippa the first. She's the sister of the king that we're going to come to in a minute that we already read about. She is the younger sister of Agrippa and Bernice, and she is a Jewess. And so in the eyes of the law, she's an adulterer. So these are the two people that Paul is speaking to about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. You know, it's interesting because the context says they invited Paul to come and tell them about, speak to them about faith in Christ. And, and what Paul does is he addresses their own personal issues. Now, when we come to Agrippa, we find it's a completely different approach. Agrippa is a different person. He has a reputation of being an authority on the Jewish religion. Uh, at one time, he held the power of appointing the high priest. And at one time, he was also the guardian um, over uh, the priestly garments that were worn on the day of atonement. And so Paul recognizes that and he respects that and we see as Paul addresses Agrippa he he does so differently. He doesn't talk to him about righteousness self-control and the judgment to come. Instead, Paul tells him his own story. Agrippa's a Jewish king. Paul's I'm 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 a Jewish Uh, rabbi. And let let me tell you my story. So he tells his own story. And then he appeals to the prophets and to Moses. And he appeals to the king's existing knowledge of the events concerning Jesus. So my point is that in speaking truth to power, he spoke relevantly. He spoke specifically to their personal uh, backgrounds and issues. And then thirdly, he spoke boldly. Paul spoke boldly, as we can see. And once again, as we think of his addressing Felix, righteousness, self control, and judgment, this is bold. It would be easy for Paul to talk in more sort of generalities about, because they wanted to know tell us more about faith in Christ. Paul could have talked about all kinds of things regarding faith in Christ without going there. You know, let's just keep it general. Let's talk about who Jesus is, talk about what he did, what he claimed, how he died, how he rose again. Let's talk about the evidence for it. Paul could have done that without ever saying, but you know, Felix, we need to talk about righteousness because you're unrighteous. We need to talk about self-control because you have zero self-control. We need to talk about judgment because guess what? Judgment day is coming. So we see the absolute boldness of Paul in approaching this. And, and this is also to us a reminder that different people need a different presentation of the truth. You know, we can kind of get caught in the, the idea, you know, that's kind of the two extremes. I mean, for some people there's the presentation is always love, 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 God loves you and everything is about love. And then some people, it's really kind of the opposite. It's just wrath and judgment and all of that. But you know, the different people need different things. Now, some people might be tempted to look at this here and say, "Well, Paul didn't really preach the gospel. He just talked about righteousness, self-control, and and judgment to come." Well, Paul certainly preached the gospel. He knew how to do that. He knew what he was doing. But he recognized with with um, Felix, evidently that Felix was, he was not really receptive to the message of God's love. But he was apparently concerned about God's judgment. And see, if we fall into the trap of just presenting one side of the case or the other, then we're going to end up giving the wrong message to people. So we need to be sensitive in each case. And um, a little verse there in Jude, uh, I think it really sets this out the way it ought to be. Uh, Jude says this, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. You know, some people today would say you never should talk about judgment. You shouldn't talk about hell. And even if you're going to, you need to understand that hell's not really an eternal thing. And there's a lot of Uh, Effort on the parts of some people today to really downplay the, the side of wrath and judgment. But some people will not respond to anything but that. And that's why Jude says, save some with compassion, others with fear. Some people need to be saved with fear. Some people need to be scared into the kingdom. Now, some would argue and say, well, you can't be scared into the kingdom. I think you can. and I think the Bible indicates that you can, because Jesus certainly went out of his way at times to tell people about uh, the, you know, the seriousness of sin and the consequences that would come. Now, of course, in the end, your, your ultimate connection with God and your ongoing relationship with him is not going to be based on, I just don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to do what God said. But the, the judgment aspect can be the, the initial jarring that one needs to recognize they need to be saved. And then of course, in recognizing they need to be saved, they get the picture of God's love for them. And that's what a person will ultimately respond to. But we need both depending on the person. Now to King Agrippa, he was bold with uh, Felix, but he was bold with Agrippa as well. Notice with Agrippa, and he says in in response to Festus, he says, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Now that is bold on the part of Paul as well. Again, he, you know, the temptation would have been to just think that, you know, I'll just get enough information out there for Agrippa to really weigh these things out. He's got a good background understanding of of Jewishness and Judaism and all of that. And I'll just fill in the blanks and then I'll let him, you know, put the pieces together later. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul goes right to the heart. Do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? I know you believe the prophets. And he presses Agrippa on this. And what's Agrippa's response? Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul says, well, I wish you would. Not just you, but I wish everybody here listening to me would become a Christian as well. Now, what this shows us too about Paul is that in the end, he was more concerned with their eternal well-being than he was with his temporary well-being. Because you can bet your life that this, I mean, he's taking huge risk here. You know, somebody like Felix, especially, who is corrupt, who is volatile, who has a a history of violence and these kinds of things. This This is his history you know, you're suddenly going to, you're going to pin him down on his life and you're going to show him that judgment is coming. Uh, Man, that, that can be a a really, um, you know, tempting situation to, to back off on that. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul, he boldly takes those steps. And the fourth point is that He is fearless and he's fearless or he does this uh, speaking truth to power fearlessly, meaning this, and the distinction between boldly and fearlessly is that fearlessly meaning that, that Paul is not worried so much about whether he's liked or disliked and he's not so much worried about what the consequence will be for himself personally Paul is a man who trusts God and his primary goal is to please God. So he's going to please God, even if he might displease these men. And he's going to trust God rather than draw back in fear and not say what needs to be said because there might be negative consequences. After all, again, Felix might've just said, well, this is, you know, tired of Paul and uh, I've got the power to deliver him right over to the chief priest, and they've already determined that they're going to kill him. So uh, he could have made that happen for them had he wanted to do that. And and so Paul would know that as a reality, but he takes that risk, and we see that in addressing the power, he does so fearlessly. And in all of these things. Um, This is how we must address power if and when the opportunity comes for us to do it. We must do it like Paul did it. Now, speaking truth to power. So we're making our way through Acts. We're coming close to the end. And remember that Acts is the history of the earliest Christianity. And one of the things that's clear... is that God intends the church to be a witness and rebuke to worldly powers. That's one of the roles of the church. And you can see it from the very beginning of the whole story because these guys are in constant conflict with the worldly powers. First, their opposition came from the the Jewish authorities in the early chapters of Acts, and then we find that they're constantly coming into conflict with the uh, Roman powers as well, and and this is part of the church's role in the world—to be a witness and a rebuke to worldly powers. Christians—and here's the—you know—here's the challenge: Christians are to be simultaneously subjected to the governing authorities and also ready to challenge and rebuke abuses of those authorities. And that's what we see the apostles doing. Paul and Peter, in their instruction to the churches, as well as in their example, they were subjected to the authorities. Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says, be subject to the governing authorities um, because those authorities are appointed by God. Uh, But then we find that Um, we see here that there is uh, those occasions where there's a rebuke of those authorities. So the church is to be a reminder to the powers that be that there is a higher authority. That's what the church is to be in the world. One of the things we're a witness to the world, but we're, we're a reminder Uh, to the powers that be that there is a higher authority, there is a greater kingdom. And of course, Christ is a higher authority and God's kingdom is the greater kingdom that we're all subject to. And so that's why there's a legitimate place to push back. That's why there's a place when the government perhaps says something like, you know, this is now uh, a decision that we've made and everybody must comply with this. If it's something that goes against Um, God's revealed will in his word, it goes against my conscience as a believer, then my obligation is no longer to submit to the government, but my obligation is now to be obedient to God and to refuse to come under uh, that authority. Now, remember, I alluded to it a moment ago. Um, Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you know that in that day, the, the motto of the day amongst the Romans was Caesar is Lord. So when Paul says Jesus Christ is Lord, he is contradicting the, what's, what's coming down from the government. Uh, the Roman government, wa- they, wanted, um, they wanted peace in the empire. They wanted to be able to control everything. And so Part of it was just get everybody on board with recognizing the ultimate authority of the emperor. And then, you know, they can have freedom to do their different things and even their different religions. Uh, but, you know, Caesar is Lord was something that would unify the, the empire. But the Christians couldn't say it. Not only couldn't they say it, Paul says, no, actually Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we read that today and we just think, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, that was great. We don't realize that's a direct pushback against the propaganda of the empire when Paul wrote those words. Now, the problem historically is that the church has sought to attain worldly power rather than rebuke it. And that is always a disaster for power corrupts. And this is why the Constitution of the United States of America uh, made it clear that there was not to be a state-sponsored church in this country. Those that came from Europe came from places where they experienced firsthand state-sponsored churches that were corrupted, and did more of the bidding of the government than the proclaiming of the gospel and generally oppressed those who wanted to truly follow Christ. And so that was part of their reason for making sure there was a clear uh, distinction between the church and the state. And it doesn't matter where you look or at what time in history you look at it, where the church has sought worldly power, you will find that it has been corrupted. That is just the nature of it. That's where it goes. Um, Every state church is corrupted and has sold out the gospel for worldly power. So the church is to check abuses of power, not to be complicit with it. Now, when I say the church, obviously I'm speaking of the larger Christian community and just how how the Christian community conducts itself. That doesn't mean that Christians can't be involved in political processes and hold political office and things like that. It just really means that the church collectively is, is never to seek to rule over a society, or it's never to join hands with the government in order to do that. Because like I said, no matter how well-intentioned anybody is, history proves over and over again, it's never, it's never a good thing. It's always the wrong thing. And of course, Jesus made it clear, my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus made it clear that he will set up the kingdom when he comes. That's not the job of the church to do. So, all right, so that's the church. But what about us? Because Most of us probably are not going to be brought before a judge or a ruler or a governor or a king uh, to speak truth to power. We might be, but, you know, probably won't. But we surely have people in our lives that have certain degrees of power over us uh, that we might at times need to speak to. And that is intimidating, isn't it? Now, there are, there are people that you just are naturally, and not in a bad way, you're just naturally intimidated by certain people. People with a, an element of power. Let's just say your boss, for example. You know, there, there's, a, there's a bit of an intimidation there. If, if God said to you today, tomorrow morning, I want you to go into your boss's office and I want you to sit them down, and I want you to say, I want to talk to you about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. <laughs> How many of you would be a little bit intimidated at the prospect of doing that tomorrow? Now, we would. All of us would. Because that's just the way it is. There, there are people. And it doesn't have to be your boss. I mean, it could be anybody. It could be... Um, a teacher. could be a respected elder or friend. It could be a parent. It could be a relative. It could be somebody who, you know, is maybe more educated than you are, or maybe somebody that's wealthy. You know, all of those things, you know, those things are real and they have power. And you've maybe experienced that where at times you've just thought, I couldn't talk to that person. They're They're so much smarter than I am. And how could, I, how could I even, you know, who am I to be able to address somebody like that? But see, these are the kinds of things that at times we will be called to do. To share the gospel with those that we feel naturally intimidated by, but God might call us to actually do that. And so what do we do if that's the case? Well, we do what Paul did. We seek to be respectful. We want to be relevant. We want to talk to them about the, the things that really need to be talked about. And like I've already said, everybody's different. So we can't, um, we can't approach every person in the exact same way. You know, sometimes in the... I was thinking about this yesterday. Sometimes in the church, in our history, you know, we, we come up with these kind of just like um, programmed approaches to things, you know. If there was ever a place where that shouldn't happen, it should be with us, because we should be spontaneous. We should be looking to be led by the Spirit. We should recognize that everybody's different, and so God's got a, you know, He's got a, a, a different angle, if you will, for for different people. And we want to be sensitive to that. And I, I just think sometimes the church of all the, you know. We, we just should never be doing that. Just this, you know, this packaged, programmed, here it is, you know. Now, can God use that? Yes, because God's really merciful. He just uses a lot of things that aren't the ideal. But why should we be reduced to that? We need to approach people, as we've said, we need to do it respectfully. We need to do it relevantly. That means we need to be seeking God's wisdom on how we actually do that and what are the relevant things in their lives that we address with them. And then there is the need for boldness. There's the need for boldness. Sometimes, you know, we're going to have to say things that are uncomfortable to say. You know, I've been in so many situations with people where, you know, you're talking to them and it's going pretty good. And you're kind of sharing back and forth and you're making a little bit of headway. And then they say something that you just, everything in you wants to just pretend like they didn't say that because you don't want to address it because you know that when you do, the conversation could go the complete opposite direction. And you're just like, no, oh, oh, wait a second. No, no. We got to back up here for a minute. Um, but that's a part of being bold, where we just take that step respectfully. We do that. But then remember, fearlessly as well. Fearlessly meaning that we're not, we're, we're not ultimately concerned with what people think of us, and we're not ultimately concerned with the consequences, but we're trusting God. I, I'm more concerned with what God thinks of me, and I'm, I'm trusting God to watch over me and take care of me. Look, we're living in a climate where, uh, there's, there's strong, uh, ideologies that are dominating our culture today. It's happening in in the corporate world. You know, 10 years ago, you could be on the job and you could, you know, say things, uh, that you would literally get fired for today. And so what's, What's the fear? The fear is, well, I can't really say anything because I'll lose my job. But in, and in some cases, you might, that might not be the time or place to say it. I, I would grant that. But then there are times when you are just in a situation where you can't not say it. But the fear is, if I say this, I'm gonna get reported and I'm probably gonna lose my job. So I'm not gonna say it. Because what do I do if I don't have my job? Well, this is where trusting God comes into the picture. This is where we say, you know, no, I I have got to take a stand on this, and you know, there are lots of negotiable things out there, but there are certain non-negotiable things. I've got to stand on this. You know, it's even even today. I mean, it is it is a uh, it is a volatile concept to even say something so clearly biblical as Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is the only savior in the world. There is no other salvation. There is no other religion that connects a person with God. That is an issue in, in corporate America and in the corporate West today. So where at one time, you would have just simply said that as a matter of fact, as a Christian, and that would have just been the way it was. Now today, you, you risk maybe your um, position by saying such a thing. But when it comes to something like that, we've got to say that. We have to stand up and, and speak those truths. And so that's where we need to trust God, and that's where we need to be fearless. And I would add two final things to that um, I would add humble. We need to do all of this in humility, respectful and humble. Are, I think they probably go hand in hand, but you know, we approach things humbly rather than arrogantly. And no doubt in the end, I'm sure that Paul approached all of these things prayerfully. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to approach everything prayerfully because we serve the living God who gives us assistance, who gives us power, who gives us wisdom, who gives us the ability to navigate things that we in ourselves don't know how to navigate. So as we prayerfully approach these things, I am absolutely certain that as Paul is going before Felix, he is praying that the Lord will help him know how to handle this situation. And I'm absolutely certain that at a point, Paul understood that I've got to go for the jugular with with, uh, Felix here. I've got to address his own personal issues. And so we do all of this prayerfully. And here's the final point. Always looking ultimately to bring people closer to Jesus or in some cases closer to the way of Jesus. Now we see here again, finally, Paul, his objective is not even so much to defend himself. His objective is to make sure these guys really hear the gospel and understand their need for the Savior. That's, that's Paul's primary objective. And that should be our objective as well, that we are looking to bring people the knowledge of salvation through Christ. But then there's also a place um, where we can also push for bringing people closer to the way of Jesus. And this is what I mean by this. Um, You know, Jesus has a certain way that he wants us to live. And in some cases, you're not going to persuade a person in power necessarily to believe in Jesus. You might attempt, and that attempt might not actually, um, you know, be realized, but you can also talk about the way of Jesus. You know, this, like, say, for example, policies. So there, there are policies in place. There are poli- workplace policies. There's policies in, the, in our government and so forth. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a place to push back even against some policies and say, you know, this policy isn't good. This isn't the way of Jesus. This isn't the way Jesus would do something. And we can make efforts uh, to try to change and make the policies better, more in line with the way that Jesus would do it. But again, it kind of comes back around to how do we approach it all? And there are people today, there are Christians today who are very unhappy with certain policies that our government has implemented. And I agree with them. But I also agree that ranting and venting and shouting and screaming and calling names and all of that, that doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't help the people that we're trying to help. We have to be the wise ones and know how to speak truth to power to affect change, because that's in the end what we're wanting to see. And so... Again, always looking ultimately to bring people to Jesus, but also closer uh, to the way of Jesus, if that is uh, the only possibility, but it can be a very good thing. So Lord, help us as we navigate the world that we find ourselves in today. And as we, all of us have relationships and people that we, um, understand our, at least to some degree, in positions of power over us. Lord, you know that we can be intimidated and we can draw back when we should step forward and when we should speak. So Lord, would you just help us individually as Christians to do that in the right way when the opportunity arises? And Lord, help us collectively as your church, not just us here today, but Lord, your church, your body uh, throughout the nation and around the world, Lord, that we could understand that it's not about gaining worldly power, but that it's about pressing into the power of God and trusting you. So help us, we pray, Jesus. Amen.